All right. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new with us, we have been since the fall uh, teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the more well-known texts of Scripture, whether you're here and you're a Christian or you studied this in some uh, secular literature class. Um, I hear people oftentimes say that they love the Sermon on the Mount. And my response is always the same. You probably never read the Sermon on the Mount because it's a very searching, penetrating, convicting uh, passage. It's the longest sermon that we have of Jesus is on record. Certainly Jesus said and did more, uh, the Apostle John tells us, than what is in these biographical accounts. But this is the longest one we have on record. And so just to give you a little bit of context of the Sermon on the Mount, in case you're new um, or forgotten, uh, Matthew chapters 1 through 4, Jesus comes into... Uh, a dark world, right? A, a dark and chaotic world that is every bit as, as violent and confusing and frenetic as the one in which we live. I mean, the Roman Empire certainly had uh, a reputation for being a dark uh, place, a dark regime. And so uh, we see uh, injustice, we see uh, the killing of children, all these things happening in the early chapters of Matthew. Jesus enters into this frame in Matthew 4 as, in the fulfillment of Isaiah, a light in the darkness. So Jesus, not fearing the darkness, not afraid to get icky or to catch something, uh, enters in as a missionary. God himself in the flesh becomes a human and he begins to preach the kingdom of God, the, the reign and the rule of God. He, he starts with this sermon here in chapter 4, verse 17. The very first words uh, in the book of Matthew attributed uh, to Jesus publicly, repent or stop and turn around. There's a new regime, there's a new kingdom, there's a new administration with new laws and new policies and a new vision for uh, wholeness. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reign and the rule of God has come near to you. It is at hand, it is here, it is now. We begin to experience a foretaste of the, the, the reign and the rule of God. And so chapter 5, he begins to unpack what does it look like to, to be a part of this kingdom? What kinds of people belong in this kingdom, and what does it look like to live into this kingdom? And so let me just give you a summary. We, we've taught through each of the Beatitudes, and I'm sure probably too much depth for some of you. Like, can we move on to the rest of the sermon? Okay, we're not going to be in this 10 years. Uh, we've gone uh, Beatitude by Beatitude, and we come to the last two, uh, the last two, which are really one couplet here. But let me just give you a summary here from a scholar on uh, kind of the progression of the Beatitudes. It's important to see that Jesus doesn't just give us content that he's building a progression here that's important. So hear this. The Beatitudes have gone full circle. In the first seven Beatitudes, we see Jesus' blessings lifting people up from the death valley of poverty, grief, powerlessness, and injustice. So those are not just attitudes. Those are literally social conditions. Uh, Those are the people that Jesus is looking at as he's preaching and bringing the kingdom. Then, sending people out, after he lifts them up, sending them out just as dramatically into the breadth and the width of a worldwide mercy, purity, and peacemaking. We talked about that last week. But now, when the faithful really get into the world, they immediately get into trouble and the world puts them down again. When we are really in the earth, we will be put down by it. That's the words of Jesus here in this message, blessed are you who are persecuted. And so we see in the, these two verses, Jesus for the first time moves from third person to second person. 
right? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Then in verse 11, now he's going to look at the disciples and say, blessed are you when you are persecuted. So for the very first time, he takes what he's been teaching in general about the kingdom of heaven. And you can see kind of the sandwich here uh, grammatically. Uh, he starts with poverty of spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He ends with persecution. Theirs are the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, now let me tell you, he summarizes and personalizes all that he's been teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And really for the rest of chapter 5, 6, and 7, he's going to unpack what it looks like to live in opposition and hostility, being in the kingdom of God. And so I want to look today at these words, and I want to put under three just simple words, and hopefully this will give us some hooks to hang it on. I want to talk about the resistance that we should expect as we seek to live into Jesus' kingdom vision right here and right now on the earth. Okay, so resistance, and then the righteousness that's going to fuel that resistance because there's, there's a way to be in the world that's going to result in persecution that's good and right and godly, and there's a way to be in the world that's going to incur uh, and elicit some persecution that's actually not really about Jesus, it's more about us. Um, and then thirdly, I want to talk about the reward. What is it that sustains us in the midst of ours? So kind of the expectation, and then why do we experience persecution in this world, and then what's going to sustain us in the midst of that opposition and hostility. So let's start with the resistance, the hostility, the opposition that we should anticipate as kingdom citizens in this world. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely. What does it mean to be persecuted? This word gets thrown around a lot. Religious people are very fond of using uh, persecution terminology, uh, writing blogs and articles and making speeches and, and inciting this kind of persecuted mentality. So what is persecution here? What does this word mean? The word persecution refers to lots of things in the Bible. It can mean systematic and programmatic oppression. We see that happening in the Roman Empire, targeting uh, families and children. It can mean unjust harassment. It can mean social exclusion, excluding certain groups of people on the basis of skin color, on the basis of ethnic heritage, on the basis of a number of things, class excluding them from access to the benefits of power and society. It can mean verbal and physical abuse. At its worst, it's murderous rage that results in violence, such as beheadings and bombings, and what people really honestly experience, our brothers and sisters around the world, Christians experience on a day-to-day basis. This is, this is the normal experience of most followers of Jesus around the world every day. It's peculiar, actually, that we don't experience it in the West. This is the first time possibly in history that uh, Christians on the whole don't experience daily persecution on that level. We see that happen. I don't need to quote the statistics. You can watch the news and you can see just in all kinds of countries around the world, Christians are uh, targeted, they are harassed, they are murdered, they are beheaded, they are imprisoned, they are tortured for their faith. The closest thing we probably experience here in the West to this is uh, the, the, the black church in America. We see, sometimes we think about the persecuted church and we talk about that internationally, but we forget that African Americans here in our own country who have been believers uh, over the years, systematically excluded and oppressed and pushed down, 
not only because of the color of their skin, but because of their faith in Jesus. Many of them were vibrant followers of Jesus. And so when we talk about the persecuted church, we need to expand our horizons a little bit and think about our own experiences here and how many of us, this has not been a daily reality, but for some of us, this has marked our lives. And so we need to understand that this kind of persecution is not an anomaly. It is normal. We need to kind of renormalize the idea of persecution when it comes, or, or opposition or hostility in the church. Notice Jesus says, Blessed are you when other people persecute you. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say maybe. He doesn't say you might. He says when. Now that little word when, it's a time word. And it's a word that's really important in the Sermon on the Mount. It shows up over and over and over again, for instance, in chapter 6. So Jesus, talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, says in chapter 6, when you give to the poor, for instance. Do it like this. But he's assuming if you're a follower, if you're a kingdom citizen, you will care about and give and be generous towards the poor. When you pray, one of the primary marks of a, of a, of a follower of God is they, they pray. They know their neediness and they cry out to God for help. He says, when you fast, when you are persecuted. So it's not if you're going to be persecuted, it's when you are persecuted. I remember uh, going to a missions conference several years ago uh, down in Tennessee. I was uh, raising support for SOMA. There were pastors from all around the world. And one pastor in particular, Pastor Joseph, who wasn't uh, allowed to share his last name because he was a pastor in Pakistan. And he was sharing about his experience with American Christians. And he said, one of the sad things about American Christians, as I travel and talk to American Christians, is they oftentimes talk about praying for the quote-unquote persecuted church. And he said, people and brothers and sisters in Pakistan actually think that's, one, uh, hilarious. Two, it's sad uh, that we have a whole category for Christians that we call the persecuted church. He said, and I quote, there is no such thing as the persecuted church. There is only the church, and she is always persecuted. Now you think about that. If we talk about the persecuted church, that exempts us. It creates an us and them mentality. I don't experience that. And, and, it, and it cuts the cords of solidarity and advocacy when I think, well, that's just a problem out there somewhere, but not here. John Stott, um, well-known author, says it like this. Since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, we conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. We should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather be surprised if it doesn't. Why? Like, what's surprising oftentimes about the Western church is our surprise. What's surprising is our surprise. Why? Because we have a narrative of ascendancy. We think that being a follower of God you know, brings health and wealth and prosperity. We think that it brings upward mobility, right? We have your best life now. That's how oftentimes we think about being a follower of God. But the narrative of Scripture is downward mobility. The narrative of Scripture is a journey into descent, a journey into persecution, into obscurity, into harassment and injustice. That has always been the story. Read Hebrews 11. Like, we call that the hall of faith in the Bible. It is all about Christians having hope in the midst of being sawn in two by lions, being beheaded, being tortured, being imprisoned, being beaten. 
So what should our response be? I realize this is not our experience. For many of us, we don't experience this on a regular basis. But our response can't be calloused indifference. I mean, I was convicted this week even thinking about our own church, our liturgy each week. We have a prayer for renewal. It's like, God, how many times have we prayed for our brothers and sisters overseas in the last six months? For those who are experiencing these things on a regular basis. Not many. We, we were so hyper-local. See, I think some of this is a reaction. I was a part of churches in the past where we only talked about the international and we didn't care about the block. I think some of we've kind of swung the other way. We care so much about the local and the block that oftentimes we forget that there's billions of people who live across the world who've never heard the name of Jesus. And we have faithful brothers and sisters who are taking the gospel to these places. We have 6,000 people groups, ethnic groups, ethno-linguistic groups in the world who've literally never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Ever. And so Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, commands us, remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are suffering as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. We're all members of the body. Christ is our head. The global church, the historic church, these are our brothers and sisters. So we identify with them in their suffering. We remember them. We pray for them. We advocate for them. We show solidarity with them because they are us. Persecution. But he didn't just say, blessed are you when you're persecuted. He said, blessed are you when you're reviled. That's probably more of our everyday experience in the Western church is reviling. To be reviled means to be insulted, to be mocked, to be scorned, to be excluded from certain spaces because of our relationship with Jesus. So friends are going out after work and they're going to a party. Uh, hey, let's invite Cindy along. Oh, no, you know, Cindy, she's become a Christian. You know, she doesn't do that kind of stuff. Or like people, you know, cuss around you and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you're one of those Christians. Um, you know, like your, your roommates are giving you a hard time. They used to be a lot of fun. Now they're not. They're all into Jesus and they attend church and they're all weird now. Like that's that's the kind of flavor of what Jesus is talking about. Being insulted, being mocked, being scorned, being harassed on that level. And, it, and again, this should be the normal experience for those of us who are aligned with Jesus. One scholar says this, in obedience to Scripture and to Jesus' extraordinarily authoritative claims, disciples will be called fanatics. In seeking reconciliation, so he's talking about the rest of the Sermon on the Mount here. In seeking reconciliation, they will be called cowards. In decisions for sexual purity, they will be called puritanical. In fidelity to marriage partners, they will be called prudish. In rejecting oaths, they will be called sectarian. In responding nonviolently, they will be called weak. And in loving enemies, they will be called unpatriotic. Instead of blowing people up, we believe we ought to go preach the gospel to them. And I can't think of a more apt description of the world in which we live. And here's the thing. Everyone who follows the whole Jesus will be persecuted. Not the partial Jesus, not your tribal Jesus, not, not the conservative Jesus or the progressive Jesus, the biblical Jesus, everyone who follows the whole Jesus and all that he says and all that he does will be persecuted. But here's the thing, sometimes by some people. We will be persecuted sometimes when you are persecuted by some people. If you're always getting persecuted, you're probably being a jerk. 
And some of us enjoy that. It's a badge of honor. I'm being persecuted in the name of Jesus. No, you're just being a moron, right? Like you're just, I'm giving them the truth. Okay, if you're always giving them the truth, like and they're always responding like that, maybe it's you, not Jesus, okay? If you're always doing that, but here's the thing, and here's the hard one for some of us, because some of us are like, you know, we're people pleasers and we don't like to do it. If you're never getting persecuted, you're probably being a coward. If you're never being opposed because of your loyalty to Jesus, if no one's ever raising flags on you in your office because of your loyalty to Jesus or on your block in your neighborhood, then you might be a coward. So the sweet spot is to recognize that as Christians, we're not always going to be persecuted, but there's a tension to live into. We should be willing to be martyrs without having a martyr complex. You know what a martyr complex is? Just dying to myself, you know, I was going to be persecuted, marginalized, can't say happy, you know, I can't say Merry Christmas anymore. Like those kind of people, that's a martyr spirit. The church has always been a place where we have attractive components and offensive components. That's the life of Jesus. Jesus was both attractive and offensive. Jesus elicits both persecution and conversion. In the same passage here in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you're going to be persecuted, but then look forward, and I'll put the verses on the screen, to Matthew 5.16. Just a couple verses later, he says, people are going to hate your guts, but in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Repel and attract. There ought to be times where because of my alignment with Jesus, People are put off by me because of Jesus. And there ought to be times when people are attracted because of the good works of Jesus flowing through me. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's wrong of us to only see ourselves as persecuted and offensive and to gather around ourselves other disillusioned, embittered, resentful people and then to take joy in our oppositional status, otherwise known as social media. But Acts 8, the same people praising God with glad and generous hearts, having favor with all the people, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approves of the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in the New Testament. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Attractive, offensive. Persecution, conversion. Luke chapter 6, verse 26, the counterpart to the Beatitudes in the book of Luke, here's what he says, Woe to you! When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to false prophets. That's a hard verse. I don't know about you. I like to be spoken well of. It's not really a life goal for people to not like me. I'm a very sensitive, people-pleasing person. So some of us think that we're winning, hashtag winning. When we're out in the world and everybody, we we think we're missional, we think we're gospel-centered, we think we're advancing the kingdom when everyone speaks well of us. And we think if we just go out in the world and do good works, then the city's going to rejoice and we're just going to usher in the kingdom. 
Woe to you, he says. You could be a false prophet. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. No caveats, no exemptions, no out clauses, no mea culpas. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. There's no exception. We will be opposed. The world will have a hostility towards us. Other Christians will be hostile towards us. We don't have a great track record here religiously. We have crusades. So let me ask you a question before we move on to righteousness. Where's your following of the whole Jesus putting you at odds with people in your own family? Where is it putting you at odds with people in your ethnic group, in your religious tribe? I mean, some of the biggest persecutors of Jesus was not the secular political establishment. It was the Pharisees. It was the religious leaders because Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and he exposed their power games. And they killed him for it in conspiracy and collusion with the Roman Empire. Where is it putting you at odds with people in your business relationships? Because it will. And conversely, where is it leading to conversion? Is anybody being attracted? Like the the sweet spot, the zone for a Christian is attract and offend. We ought to be doing it. It may not be the same in every season. There may be a season where you're doing a lot of offending and, and you're trying to be faithful, but people are getting offended. There may be other seasons where like no matter what you say, how crazy it is, it's like the early chapters of Acts, you could just say, you know what? You're a horrible sinner and you need Jesus. And everybody's like, yes, I do. I need Jesus. And people are just attracted. Like God's sovereign over those things. He controls how that happens and when it happens. But if it's never happening, we have a problem. If I'm never offending anyone, then woe to me. If I'm always offending everyone, woe to me. That's the resistance that we expect and anticipate. And Jesus mixes no words. He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to know on the front end. This is not going to be your best life now. Now, why? Why do, why do Christians, why did Jesus get persecuted? He says, it should be for righteousness sake. Notice verse 10 and verse 11. There's an interesting little juxtaposition here in these two sentences. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Underline that in your Bible or highlight it. For righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Underline that. On my account. Highlight that. On my account. Now, is Jesus talking about two things? Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness and blessed are you when you're persecuted for my account? No. Matthew's saying it's the same thing. To be persecuted for righteousness is to be persecuted for Jesus. To be persecuted for Jesus is to be persecuted for righteousness. Now, remember, we talked about righteousness a few weeks ago. We said um, when we think of righteousness, we, need to, we tend to think of self-righteous, right? Like the, that word has negative connotations. But righteousness, let me give you that definition that we used a couple weeks ago. Righteousness is the situation in which things are what they ought to be. It's the world that we long for. It's a world of wholeness, a world of justice, a world of right relationships between God and men and men and men and men and themselves and men and nature. It's shalom. It's the world we long for and the world we were created to experience in the kingdom of God. So Jesus shows up and he says, this is what I came to bring. I am the very definition. I am the embodiment of that righteousness. 
I am the fullness of what it means to live a righteous life. I came to bring a kingdom of righteousness. I came to straighten out everything that's crooked, everything that's disordered. I came to renew. I came to recalibrate. I came to reorient towards God's north star. I came to restore. And so Jesus says, if you're a follower of mine, you will be persecuted like I was. Because the world can't stand the true righteousness. Religious people can't stand righteousness. They like morality. They like legalism. They like rules. They like a domesticated Jesus. But the real Jesus, man, he infuriated religious people. The secular world can't stand Jesus because Jesus calls people to surrender themselves to a higher power, to say, you are not autonomous. You are not free to live your life however you want. Your morality, your ethics is not determined by how you feel in this moment. It's determined by a sovereign God who created you for a relationship with himself. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because your essence, your core is not of this world, not that we don't live in this world, not that we get in a bunker and start doomsday prepping, but because the essence of your heart, if you're aligned with Jesus, is different. He says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So to say, I want to be a Christian but not be persecuted is to say, I want to be better than Jesus. It's impossible. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So why do we get persecuted? Because the very life of God lives in us. Because of our devotion to Jesus. Because of our transfer of allegiance to Jesus. Because of our participation in the very life and light of God. We will be hated because they hate the life of God in us. Because of our communion with God, because of our union with Christ, they will hate us. Why did they hate Jesus? Because Jesus exposed them. When the light came into the darkness, it said, this is darkness, and I've come to bring light. I know that everybody in the world thinks this is light, but let me show you true light. Let me show you true righteousness. You only have a glimpse, but I'm going to give you the fullness. And it reminded everyone of their desperate neediness of their dependence. It it showed everyone how aligned they were in their hearts with their affections and their dreams and their imaginations to all kinds of unrighteousness, both secular and religious. That's why they killed Jesus. It's the same reason you hate going to the doctor and getting the scan. Because you know they're going to tell you, it's like a a cup of cold water, they're going to splash water in your face and say, hey, I know you think you're healthy, but your blood pressure is 1,200. Something's wrong. (laughs) They receive us. We don't receive them. Jesus received the world. The world did not receive him. If you've ever been a part of any kind of group, like this time of year, it's like everybody's whole 30. I'm one of like, you know, the five people on the planet that's not doing a whole 30. And it's like, you you know, have you ever been in a group and you got involved in whole 30 or a fitness group and then you bowed out? Like you talk about persecution, where are you? Like you're getting texts and everyone's hounding you. Why? And you, and you hate it and you feel shame. And what do you do? You cut off communications with people. You stop hanging out where they hang out. You close your door. You, know, you, you insulate yourself. Um, you lock the door. Why? 
Because their phone call, their text exposes your evil deeds. It's hard to leave that group. And now you're on the outside of that group. That's what Jesus is saying here. The righteousness, when he shows up, exposes evil in the world. It exposes evil in the human heart. And we hate it. And here's the thing. Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. Jesus offended the religious people. He offended the secular powers that be. He offended conservatives. And he offended progressives. Jesus says you will be persecuted, but you better be persecuted for righteousness sake. The blessing of God will be on you as you are being persecuted for righteousness. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say blessed are you when you're persecuted because of you. For your sake, on account of your stupidity, on account of, uh, on account of your uh, Myers-Briggs profile. This is just the way that I am. I'm an ENTJ. Deal with it. Okay, that's you. That's not Jesus. He, he doesn't say, uh, blessed are you when you're persecuted because you're a tool, because you're a schmuck, right? Like, it doesn't say that. There's no blessing on that. That's you. It doesn't say, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of your political cause. <laughs> blessed are you when you align yourself with uh, whatever pundit, you know, fill in the blank for yourself. Blessed are you uh, when you're culturally marginalized. Because that's the space that a lot of religious people inhabit right now. We walk around with a chip on our shoulder, feeling marginalized because of whatever the thing is that we're frustrated with, with the powers that be. And therefore, we find our righteousness not in Jesus but in our political platform, then we feel marginalized. No, that's marginalization, maybe. That's not persecution. And we need to get those straight. He doesn't say, blessed are you when you're self-righteous, when you find your righteousness in yourself and you let everyone else know about it. No, he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so we need to be asking those questions. Why am I being persecuted? Is this something maybe that I'm bringing on myself? Matter of fact, there's a Bible verse about this. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you don't believe me, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. A man who was intimately acquainted with the Sermon on the Mount. Peter, always putting his foot in his mouth. He says, Beloved, writing to a church under persecution, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Oh my goodness, we're being opposed. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you also may, here's that word again, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. That word meddler there means busybody, like getting yourself involved in things that you don't belong in. If you suffer for that reason, he says, don't expect the blessing. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You will be opposed because of the righteousness that Jesus brings into your life when you realign yourself with his kingdom. You will. How do we sustain ourselves in the midst of that opposition? Because some of you are living there right now. 
That's your everyday life. You're swimming upstream. Life is difficult. Life is challenging, reviling, slandering, insulting, scorning, mocking. And for some of us, we haven't quite gotten there yet. We're still living the hashtag winning life. And there's going to come a day, though, when that all begins to crumble. How do we sustain ourselves in the midst of that? Listen to this. This is so insane. Like if Jesus wasn't God, this would be insane. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first command in the Beatitudes. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why are we blessed when we're persecuted? I mean, that word blessed there again means good news to you. Good news to you when you're persecuted. Good news to you when you're beheaded. Good news to you when you lose your job because you called out unethical behavior. Favored are you? Happy are you? Blessed are you? I mean, to me, like, that sounds masochistic. It sounds cruel. It sounds pathetic. And it's why many of you are not Christians. I don't want to be associated with people who think that suffering is some kind of prize. John Green, in one of his, his famous, as well-known book, Fault in Our Stars, talking about the suffering, he, he kind of mocks this, and he says something to the effect of one of the uh, protagonists in the book, something to the effect of, why do I need broccoli to teach me that chocolate tastes good? It's a fair question. Why is persecution called the beautiful life? How do we rejoice and be glad in the midst of Persecution. Let me just share with you three quick things. One, persecution and reviling. It identifies us with Jesus in a profound way. And not only with Jesus, but with the church historically. That's why Jesus in Acts chapter 9, dealing with Paul, the apostle Paul at the time, Saul, when Saul is executing people and ravaging the church, Jesus shows up and he knocks him off his animal in the middle of the desert and he says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus says that. Why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting Christians. No, Jesus says, I've so bound up my life and my glory with my body that to persecute Christians is to persecute me. And so when we experience suffering, when we experience persecution, not only us, but he says the prophets. Like there's a whole history here. There's a whole communion of of suffering, a community of suffering in the Psalms, for instance. We read to be a Christian is to be one who suffers. And so we identify ourselves. It's one of the ways that you actually know you're a Christian. It's one of the marks of real Christianity, authentic Christianity, that you're being opposed for Jesus. It also exposes the inadequacy of earthly kingdoms and earthly rewards. He says, great is your reward in heaven. He says, you ought to be motivated by a sense of reward. And and when you're persecuted, it's a reminder that you don't belong to the kingdoms of this world. You're on the fast track in business. You're tempted to think that money and success and status and promotions is kind of really the good life, right? All of us get in those spaces. And then all of a sudden opposition comes and you're like, oh, yeah, I belong to a kingdom, not of this world. I'm not guaranteed success. I'm not guaranteed upward mobility. Matter of fact, I'm promised downward mobility. And that's going to put me in conflict with the values of my supervisor sometimes, with my co-founder sometimes, with my boss in the hospital sometimes, with my patients sometimes. That's going to put me at odds with my own family. 
but it exposes those things like anything you would look to as a reward to compensate you, to motivate you, to sustain you. What's it going to be like? What is it that's going to be stable enough and enduring enough to see you through to the end in those dark days? Is it going to be profit? Like how much is enough? It used to be $10,000. Then it's $100,000. Then it's a million dollars. It's never enough. You can get promoted to the top of the company. It's never enough. Those rewards will never satisfy. And so suffering and persecution takes our hands off of those things and reminds us that we belong to a greater kingdom. And then it prepares us for life in the kingdom. Not just in the future, you know, heaven and the kingdom of heaven, again, is not like in the words of that famous theologian, Ricky Bobby, where you sit around in a golden fleece diaper and you play harps and you sing uh, romantic, you know, like adolescent love songs to Jesus forever. That's not the vision of heaven. Heaven is the reign and the rule, the administration of God come down to this earth. It is living in a world of justice and wholeness. And so Jesus by saying, great is your reward in heaven. He fixes our eyes on what's ultimate, what's ultimately going to satisfy, what is permanent, what's never going to change, eternal life. And it's not bad to have rewards. Jesus himself, in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus himself was motivated by the joy of heaven. And he says, we ought to be motivated by the joy of heaven. Now, what Jesus is not doing is saying, okay, you be faithful in suffering, and then I'll give you a really nice car, and you can live in a really big house one day in heaven. I'm not going to give you, you know, virgins. I'm not going to give you mansions. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The reward, the Bible says, is God himself. The reward is Jesus himself. And so Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a down payment right now. I'm going to give it to you in fullness in heaven. So make that the controlling ambition of your life. The great reward that's out in front of you. Second Corinthians 4, Paul says, these light and momentary afflictions are working for us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now Paul's writing that as a guy who is not just mocked around the water cooler. Paul was beaten. He was almost killed on multiple occasions, snake bitten. I mean, you can read his resume in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12. And he says, those things, those light and momentary afflictions are preparing me for an eternal weight of glory. They're going to increase my glory one day. Because heaven is so much greater. The joy of heaven, the love of heaven, the presence of God is so much greater than anything else I could get in this world. And he said, so I'll fix my eyes. I'll make it my controlling ambition, my north star. And that will be the thing that sustains me in the midst of suffering and opposition and hostility. Philippians 3, Paul would go on to write and he'd say, everything that I've gained in this world, I count as dung. It's literally the strongest Greek word you can have. It means poop. It means feces. It means garbage. It means refuse. I count all of my accolades, all, everything I've accomplished in this world. He says, it stinks. Why? compared to knowing Jesus. I count all things for loss, he says, because I want to know him. I want to know him in the power of his death so that I can know him in the power of his resurrection. He's saying there's something greater that we fix our eyes on. And as we fix our eyes on that, and as we make that the center of our ambitions, we understand when these things become light and momentary afflictions that are preparing us to experience the fullness 
of all that God has for us in Jesus. Jim Elliott, I'll close with this quote, was a, was a missionary in South America. He uh, studied in uh, the States and then took his family with a couple other families over to serve um, a particular unrich people group. And uh, he was killed while he was there. And uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, became uh, a well-known author, wrote some books, and, and kind of uh, wrote down a lot of the things that Jim said. I remember in college reading his biography the first time. I was uh, studying to actually go overseas and be a vocational missionary. And he has just one of my favorite quotes. He says this, and I think it's just something to meditate on and think about as we think about the joy and the rejoicing and, and, and the gladness that should be ours. We should be marked as a people of God, not by resentment, not by our wounds, not by the bad things that have happened to us, because we're all going to experience that. And it's easy to, in, in a day and age in which we live uh, with social media so accessible, it's easy to create and to catalyze a community of the miserable. But he says, that's not what should mark us as the people of God. What should mark us is joy. Here's what Jim Elliott said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross. Lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died. And he rose again, offering new life to us. That's what we celebrate every week in communion. That is the only thing that will sustain us through suffering, through opposition, through resentment. This is a table born out of persecution. This is a table born out of persecution. It is the persecution of God himself that enables us to experience his glory. As we take this bread, we're reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us. He was reviled. He was spat upon. He was insulted. He was mocked for us to bring us to God. His blood was shed for us, cleansing us from our sin, giving us access to an intimacy with God the Father to restore us back to God. And this is what we celebrate. So if you're here and you're a Christian, you are finding your righteousness in Jesus alone. We'd invite you to come and take communion with us in just a moment. Take a moment to reflect to confess your sins, and then to come and receive this reminder that God is for you, that he is with you, that he has not forgotten about you, that he will never abandon you, and that there is joy and gladness to be had in surrendering yourself to his kingdom. Ultimate joy, true joy. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we have stations in the front and in the back. If you're not a Christian, we'd invite you to stay in your seat as others come and receive communion. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus that remind us about your steadfast commitment to us, that while we are opposed, while we are reviled, while we are insulted, as we seek to conform our lives and our hearts and our wills and our minds to you, that God, you've not left us alone. You promised to watch over us. You promised to be with us. You give us your kingdom. You give us your presence. So God, help us, sustain us, empower us, to live with joy, to rejoice and be glad as we suffer, not for the suffering itself, but for the reward that's coming, the reward of knowing you deeper and deeper forever as we seek your kingdom together. We pray in Jesus' name.